We'll open your Bibles with me to Psalm 51. We're going to continue with what we began last week. And although Ken prayed a good portion of this in his prayer, we're still going to review. <laughs> There's a couple of reasons for that. One is we don't always remember what was said the week before. And when you're doing a two-part message and you're dividing up a psalm or a passage in several sections, it's always helpful to go back and bring remembrance to everybody for the same purpose and for the same central parts of what's already been said. So as we look at Psalm 51, we know that this is a psalm of David written sometime after he was found guilty of both adultery and murder. He was confronted by the prophet Nathan. We'll look at that very briefly a little bit later on. He was reminded of the depth of his sin and of his need for forgiveness. And so Psalm 51, coupled with Psalm 32, is an account of David's prayer to the Lord in in the response to the sin that he had committed. So as we looked at Psalm 51 last week, we looked at number one in our outline of, of David's cry. He begins his plea before the Lord with a cry for mercy. He says in verse one, be gracious to me, O God, according to your love and kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. And so David understood that his adultery and the arranging of the murder of Uriah was deserving of death by Israeli law, and he had only the mercy of God to plead for. There was no one who could do for David what he so desperately needed. The only place that he could turn was to the Lord God Almighty. And so this is exactly what he does. And we know what mercy is. Mercy is God not giving to us what we so clearly deserve. And for David here, it is death. And so this is what David is depending upon. This is what David is crying out for. It is the mercy of God. And coupled with that, David cries out for God's loving kindness. That term in the, in the Hebrew is kesed, and it speaks of a covenant that God has made with his people to be faithful to forgive when they come before him with their sin. So he cries out for God's mercy. He cries out for God's loving kindness. And he cries out for God's compassion. David's great sin made him desperate for the great God's compassion. Compassion is looking at the need of someone and being moved to action to remedy that need. And that is exactly what David is crying out for. Together, these three words, mercy, loving kindness, and compassion, describe David's desperate need for something He did not deserve, could not find on his own, but could only find in the God who loved him. David acknowledges, and it is the result of this sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, that this this reality is he is saturated with sin. Verses 1c and 2, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So David uses three words here to describe God's nature, mercy, love, and compassion. And these are in direct contrast to David's spiritual condition. He is a transgressor. He is filled with iniquity and he has committed egregious sin. He says to God, please blot out, wash, and cleanse me from these things that I have done. These verbs 
are the application of God's mercy, loving kindness, and compassion to cover the depths of David's sin. Now, we can sit here today and we can say, well, you know, I've never committed adultery and I've never committed murder, so I don't have the same need that David has in crying out for these things. But the reality is, is that you and I are equally as saturated with sin, even though we have not committed the same kind of sin that David has committed. We'll look at that here as a part of the review in just a moment. Secondly, in our outline, we see David's confession. He says, I have sinned. He says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I have sinned against you alone. Against you, you only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. After all, God is the one who has established His law. God is the one that has established what is truth, And what is false, and in this context, God is the one that David has sinned against. He has sinned against God alone. He says, I am thoroughly sinful. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And so what David is saying is, from the very time that I was in my mother's womb, I was saturated in sin. The saturation of this sin has been proven in the fact that I have done these things with Bathsheba and Uriah. It doesn't take just doing those things to prove our saturation with sin. It is simply the example of how deeply ingrained sin is in our lives that we could ever conceive of doing such a thing. Now, what David says here, that he was conceived in sin is what we would call today the doctrine of original sin. And the doctrine of original sin very simply says that all mankind enters in this world with a sinful nature because we are all spiritual descendants of Adam. So we have inherited a guilty sin nature from our birth, and we are saturated with sin. And what David says in contrast to this reality is that God desires purity In the depth of our heart, verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. So purity of heart is a heart that is loyal to God. It is a heart that loves Him and obeys Him and serves Him. It is what would be said in the Old Testament and what was repeated by Jesus is that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Loving God that way does not remove our sin saturation, but it gives to us the capacity to fight and to win against the propensity for sin that we have inherited through Adam. The third thing we saw in our outline is David's appeal for forgiveness. He desires restoration in his relationship with God. And so he says in verse 7, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9, Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquity. So David says to cleanse me, to wash me, and to blot out my sin. And so David has called upon our great God of mercy, compassion, and loving kindness to do what David didn't deserve, what only God could provide, and that was to provide for him forgiveness 
and restoration. So this brings us to the passage that we have before us now, the remainder of Psalm 51, and we're going to read verses 10 through the end, all the way down in verse 19. Here's what God's Word says to us today. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So number four in our outline is David's desire for restoration. So it is obvious in verses 10 through 12 that David seeks more than just God's forgiveness. He's not simply asking that God would erase the sin and somehow magically bless him. But what David seeks more than anything else is a restoration in his relationship with God. This is what David most desperately seeks, is not just to have his sin forgiven, but to have a right standing before God. It is to stand before a holy and a righteous and a perfect God, and to recognize my own unworthiness, my own uncleanness, and to know that God has restored me in my relationship with Him, and continues to allow me to come before Him as one of the saved. What an incredible gift that is that God has given to us that even though we would commit egregious sin against Him, His throne is open through the blood of Christ so that we can come before Him and pour our, our hearts and know that He will restore us and our relationship with Him. Well, Dave is going to ask for three specific things here. Number one, he's going to ask what he desires is for a new heart. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So David understands that since he is so thoroughly saturated in sin, it is likely that he will fall into terrible sin again, and this is what he does not want. So David says, created me a clean heart. That word create in the Hebrew is used in the book of Genesis to speak of God's act of creation. It speaks of that which only God can do, and that is to create ex nihilo, which is to create something out of nothing. So in Genesis, this word is used to describe the creation of matter when God created the heavens and the earth. It is used when God created self-conscious life when He created animals. It is used when God creates God-conscious life when He creates mankind. 
David is asking that God would create in him, out of nothing, out of this sin-saturated heart, a new heart, a clean heart, because David understands that nothing good lies in him. Paul would write of this exact same truth in the book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, absolutely nothing that is in my flesh, For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. You know what this communicates to us today is very simply this. There is no measure of goodness. There is no measure of morality. There is nothing that we can bring before the Lord that makes us acceptable to Him. Our hearts are filthy. They are filled with dirty rags, and yet mysteriously and miraculously, God creates for us a new heart when we come to know Him through Christ. David desires a miracle of God, and if he has any hope of winning against the sin saturation that he has recognized, God must create within him, out of nothing, A new heart, one that is purely devoted to God, one that is no longer saturated by sin. What David prays for is the power of the gospel message, which has not yet been fully revealed. Ezekiel would pray a similar prayer in Ezekiel 36. God says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What is that? That is the promise of the gospel message that would be fulfilled when Jesus came, when he breathed his last. And on the day of Pentecost, when God would give to all saved believers his spirit and in their salvation, making them new. Jesus would come and pay our penalty for sin and create the capacity for us to live free from the power and bondage of sin. And it begins with what David prays for, and that is a new heart. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. God has done exactly what David prayed for at the moment of our salvation, and he has given us a new heart, a heart that has the capacity to be fully devoted to him, a heart that has been freed from the saturation and the power and the bondage of sin. And so David prays as we ought to pray for a steadfast spirit, the right spirit that reflects this new heart. The capacity to fulfill David's desire to walk purely before the Lord. It's the same prayer that we pray every day after we fail. Is that God would create within us a steadfast spirit that is devoted to following him. So David seeks a new heart. David also seeks for God's presence. As a part of the spiritual restoration, he desires the fellowship of God's presence. Verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Now, we have to be very, very careful that we don't take verse 11 as a standalone verse that is separated from the context of the entirety of the psalm. David has prayed for a new heart, one that walks closely with God and enjoys a constant fellowship with him. Verse 11 states this desire in the form of a negative by saying, do not cast me away and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What David is saying is, I desire to walk in the shadow of your presence. I desire the full blessing of your presence in my life. He simply expresses it in the form of a negative. David very clearly understood what happened to his predecessor, Paul, Saul. God withdrew the Holy Spirit from him and rejected him as king. And Saul was cut off from this fellowship with God. And this is what David did not want. He understood that when he sinned, he risked losing the full blessing of God in his life. And David did not want that. He wanted the restoration of God's presence in his life. David speaks from an understanding of the gravity of the sin that he has committed. And John Calvin would express the sentiment in David's comment like this. It is natural that the saints, when they have fallen into sin, and have thus done what they could do to expel the grace of God, should feel an anxiety upon them at this point. And this is what David is expressing. The anxiety of the depth of his sin... And this desire to have full privilege of relationship with God, that he would feel God's presence every step he took for every day of his life. So David prays for the constant presence of God, where he would enjoy the full fellowship and the full anointing of the Holy Spirit upon his life. The third thing that David desires as a part of his spiritual restoration is joy and salvation. Verse 12 here, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David is not praying for salvation, but he's praying for restored joy in the salvation that God has prepared for him. So here's the question. Is there joy in our salvation? Well, absolutely there's joy in our salvation. But how much joy is there in salvation when we are at the point of recognizing the depth of our sin and committing the unthinkable against God. How much joy is in our salvation if we were to be caught of adultery or to be guilty of murder? You see, sin brings sorrow, but our confession and God's cleansing brings back the joy in our salvation. God forgiving our sins brings the joy back to our salvation because we better understand how good God is, how faithful God is, how merciful and compassionate God is, that He would do for us what we don't deserve, that He would give to us what we could never provide for ourselves. The epitome of this willingness to forgive is found in Christ on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, the Father made him the son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. For what purpose? So that we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that means? It means that when we have the righteousness of Christ put upon us through the cross, we have a right standing before God. 
We are now justified. We are cleansed. We are forgiven. And God chooses not to hold our our sin against us. And that gives to us an immeasurable amount of joy in our salvation. At every point of failure in our walk with him, God cleanses and restores. And this ought to bring to us incredible joy. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, didn't make it there, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at the moment of our confession, there is a restoration in our broken fellowship with God. This is exactly what David is praying for on the front side of the gospel message being revealed And he wants the full provision of God's blessing in his life. He asks for a willing spirit to live out his life in complete obedience to God, where he would be able to enjoy his presence and never again experience the severity of the separation that he has experienced as a result of his sin. So David's confidence in God's provision compels him to number five in our outline, to make a vow. We see David's vow. So having been forgiven and cleansed and renewed by God, David now recognizes that he has a duty to those around him. So in this section, David vows to teach what he has learned about sin and forgiveness to other sinners so that they may confess their sin and turn back to God as well. The first thing that he says here, number one, I will teach your ways. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. This, this phrase, the ways of God, is a broad designation that usually means the path of righteousness which has been set out in God's law. But it's likely that David has something else in mind here. It is likely that David wants to teach specifically how God deals with sinners. This describes two things. First of all, it describes the conviction that God brings and how he brings us to the point of confession. The parallel psalm to David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah is Psalm 32, very well known. And here's what David says. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. David was not an old man. David was not giving in to the pain of arthritis or fibromyalgia or any other physical symptom. It was the weight of sin on his soul that caused him to say, my body groans all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. So what David wants to teach sinners is very simply this. There is a heavy hand of conviction that is upon us when we live our lives with unconfessed sin. And it is God's desire that the weight of that conviction would cause us to recognize the sin saturation and it would cause us to cry out for restoration with the only one who can provide it, and that is God Himself. What David says before he laments 
the conviction of God in his life is simply this. In verses 1 and 2 of that same psalm, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So you and I can play a game with God, and we can come before him and say, Well, you know... You know, God, I've never cheated on my wife. I've never beaten my kids. I've never lied on my taxes. I've been a good citizen. I have always voted. I've helped helped people who were less fortunate than me. And so here I am. I'm going to bring my bag of good deeds before you. And God says, phooey, it's all dirty to me because you are steeped in sin, and you have not received the restoration that your dirty soul so desperately needs. Our conviction can be humanly soothed by trying to live a good life. And when we come before God and give an account of our life, and we elevate up to Him the goodness of the life we live, we are going to fail miserably because it is only the blood of Christ that makes us acceptable to Him. It is only the man whose sin is covered. It is only the man whose heart has no deceit in him that comes before God and says, I am a sinner. I am in need of the forgiveness and the cleansing and the restoration that only You can provide. God, I plead for Your mercy. I depend upon Your loving kindness. I am desperate for your compassion. Is that our heart? It's most certainly our need, but it doesn't automatically mean that that is our heart. Paul would repeat these exact words in Romans 4, 7, and 8 as a way of explaining God's ways of bringing justification to the sinner, and that is the man who's confessed his sin before the Lord, the man who has no deceit in his spirit, It is the man whom God has forgiven. This is the gospel message. It is the cleansing of sin and our restoration before God through our confession, which is completed by Christ on the cross when He took upon Himself our pain and our sin and our consequence. So the result of this teaching and teaching the way that God will justify sinners, is that sinners will be converted to God, the lost will be saved. Let me ask you this. Let's suppose that you're dealing with someone who says, I don't know Jesus as my Savior. I don't know what I would say if I stand before God today and He says, give me an account for your life. What if you said to that individual, well, here's what you've got to do. First of all, you've got to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. All your you can't take the Lord's name in vain, and you can't covet your neighbor's wife, and you can't steal, and you can't lie, and you can't cheat, and you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. This individual is going to say, wait a minute, I don't want any of that. I can't do that. But what if you came to this individual who says, I don't know what I would say if I were to give an account of my life to God today. What if all you said to him was this? Simply acknowledge that you're a sinner before God. Simply ask God to forgive you through the blood of Christ. And if you do that, God will make you clean. He will accept you into his family and he will give to you a right standing before him. Well, I can do that. 
That's pretty easy to do. You see, that's where it starts. It's all the other stuff that is to be the result of the salvation that God gives to us and what we cannot earn and what we do not deserve. And our response to that is a life that desires to love Him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. It is not loving God that way that saves us. It is loving God that way that is the expression of our thanks to Him for the salvation that we enjoy. So David wants to teach how lost sinners can be converted to right standing before God, and that is very simply to, con- to confess our sin. Number two, David says, I will teach your righteousness. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. So David identifies the gravity of the sin that he was guilty of, the blood guiltiness, and he repeats his confession of this sin and commits to telling others of God's righteousness. Now the word righteousness is not so much the righteousness of God as he is in himself. He is wholly righteous, but rather his righteousness and the justification of sinners. Oh, think about that. The righteousness that David wants to teach others about is not the perfection of God and the, the way that God is unlike anybody else and the way that God is elevated above all mankind. The righteousness of God is in the way He chooses to provide justification for the sinner. Again, this righteousness of God is expressed in 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to do what? To forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, it is the righteousness of God and that He justifies guilty sinners through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He does so because Christ's death has given to us a just or a right standing before him. So the righteousness that David wants to teach others about is not about God's attribute of being righteous, but about the way God will deal with guilty sinners in a righteous manner by providing for them forgiveness of sin and gifting them with salvation through the confession of sin. This means that God acts justly and in faithfulness to His promise when we confess and He forgives our sin. He is just because He does it on the basis of Christ's atonement and He is faithful because He has promised to forgive all who will confess their sin and come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. David desires to teach others God's ways and justifying sinners. It is His ways. It is His righteousness and how He does that. He expresses this in verse 15. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare Your praise. You see, this is the result of our salvation. The result of our salvation and understanding the way God justifies guilty sinners ought to create within us a desire for our mouth to teach others about this same incredible thing. It is praising God for the forgiveness 
and the cleansing of sin. You see, the gospel message isn't about living in perfect, sinless obedience. It is about forgiveness and justification for our inability to do so. We will never live a perfectly sinless life. We will never live in perfect obedience to God. But the gospel provides for our cleansing through the confession of our wrongdoing before the God who has justly declared us clean from our sin. The world needs to hear that message. Not that you have to live a sinless, perfect life, but that God will cleanse you for your inability to live a sinless, perfect life. The justification of the guilty sinner before a righteous and a merciful God. And through the mouth of Jeremiah and Lamentations 3, the Lord's loving kindness indeed, excuse me, the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease, for his compassions, plural, never fail, for they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. What do you hope in? Being good enough? God being too busy to overlook a few things? Being able to elevate our own sense of goodness to become acceptable to Him? It is His loving kindness. It is His compassion. It is His mercy. And that is the gospel in a nutshell. This is what David wants to teach about. Third thing that David says is, I will teach about brokenness. Verse 16, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are this, a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, David is not discarding the sacrificial system that God established through Moses. He simply understands that the sacrificial system didn't change the hearts of people who needed to have a new heart created in them. The sacrificial system was God's chosen way of symbolizing the seriousness of sin. The blood of an innocent animal was shed to communicate the seriousness, and the people were well aware of it, but it wasn't their blood. Now, the only way I can think that this might make more sense to us is this. You've got this beloved pet in your home, or you had a beloved pet in your home at some point in your life. Well, let's suppose that in a way to have your sin covered, you had to sacrifice the blood of your pet to cover your sin. Oh my gosh, my sin is very serious. I have to kill this little dog or this little cat that I love so dearly. I can't imagine having to do such a thing. It becomes more real, doesn't it? Well, think about it like this. God sent His one and only Son to come into the world, to shed His blood, to cover our sin. So for the Israelite in the sacrificial system, the shedding of animal blood is a reminder of the seriousness of sin, but it doesn't create the new heart that God desires. It doesn't create the willing spirit that David so desperately needs. If there was such a sacrifice, 
David would gladly deliver it. You could offer up your most beloved pet, but it's not going to fix your sin problem because tomorrow you're going to have the same need for cleansing. If David could find a sacrifice that would provide for him the new heart and the steadfast spirit within him, he would have done it. A thousand goats, ten thousand bulls. What is it, God? Whatever you want, I will give it to you. God says, I desire not sacrifice. I desire a broken heart. A heart that is crushed under the realization of my sin saturation. No hope. No plan. No provision. Nowhere to go. Except for a God who is merciful, compassionate, and filled with loving kindness. This is what David says is acceptable to, is acceptable to God. This broken spirit. A right relationship with God is not retained or advanced with ritual or ceremony. As if these sacrifices without an upright heart can please God because they cannot do so. Speaking of this in our modern terms, you could go to church every day of your life. You could go to Catholic Mass every day of your life. You could serve God in some capacity every day of your life. But that attendance, that service, whatever those things might be, are not going to create for you the new heart that you need and the new desire to live a life that reflects a love for God in response to His salvation. It is simply a broken heart. I would submit to you that it is far easier to go through the motions of religion than it is to have a broken heart before the Lord. To recognize the depth of my own sin to recognize how deeply I have grieved the heart of God. I believe it's much more difficult to come to that than it is to check the box to say, I did, I did, I didn't, I didn't. But that will not provide for us what we need. It is only our recognition that we have sinned against God alone. Our constant sin screams of our being completely saturated and sin. You sinned from the time you woke up to the time you entered into the building. You will sin from the time you leave this place until you put your head on your pillow tonight. You will sin before you get up in the morning and have your lunch. We will sin all day, every day, forever and forever. It is the recognition of that sin. It is recognizing our hopeless condition apart from a just and righteous God that forgives us our sin and provides for us a just and right standing before Him that will create for us the proper broken spirit that is pleasing to God. Is our heart broken over our sin? Does our heart really and truly grieve that we have willfully rebelled against what God has told us? Do we understand that our sin is what required the sacrificial death of Christ? On the cross. God will never look away from a heart that comes to him that is broken over sin. God is faithful to forgive, to restore, and to justify the sinner who clings to what only God can provide. Mercy, compassion, and loving kindness. David is that man. 
And this psalm expresses the desire of his heart to have a new heart, one that has the capacity and the desire to love God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength. I want you just to think very quickly, in the privacy of your own mind, where is your hope? If you were to stand before God today, and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? Can you depend upon, can you cling to the blood of Christ alone? Or is there something else you want to bring along? The gospel message is this. God has chosen to deal justly and righteously with sinners by providing forgiveness through Christ on the cross. Didn't have to do it. We certainly don't deserve Him doing that for us. And it is our broken spirit before Him that paves the way to recognizing that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through Him. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel message that reminds us that in the depth of our sinful depravity, you have made a way. And while you don't expect sinless perfection from us, the blood of Christ perfectly cleanses us from every sin we will ever commit. Father, I pray that each of us who know you as Lord and Savior would pray for a heart that is steadfast in being loyal to you, to living out all the days of our lives, loving you with all that we have. We know that we will fail in that. We thank you that you provide cleansing and forgiveness in those failures. I pray, Father, that the truth of the gospel would draw us to you, that it would have caused us to come to the end of ourselves, to look up, and to thank you that you have made a provision to thank you that you have enabled us to understand that Jesus is the way. And to thank you for giving us a heart of faith that has the capacity to trust in him. Father, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for what you'll do as a result of the, of the abiding presence of Christ in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.